Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Cameron English here with you as always, Director of Biosciences at the American Council on Science and Health, joined again by our very own Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein, Director of Medicine. Chuck, how are you this lovely afternoon? I'm pretty good. I cannot complain, which is always a treat. <laughs> I love it. Well, I can always complain, so I will complain for the both of us as time goes on. Fair enough. But in any case, we've got two stories to discuss. Chuck is the author of the first one. I'm the author of the second one. First up, we have Parkinson's disease gets diagnostic help from artificial intelligence. Very intriguing stuff that we're going to get into. And then I have a story about uh, a pretty major concert that took place in 1999 called Woodstock 99 and what that tells us about artificial scarcity and the serious impacts that that can have. So we'll get into that later. First up, though, Chuck, uh, tell us a little bit about this story. Well, I have to say that I, I came to this article because of my experience doing yoga, because one of the pillars in yoga is breathing. And as it turns out, um, controlling our breath is one of the two ways that we have of influencing our sympathetic nervous system and toning it up or toning it down. The, the other way that we have to control our sympathetic nervous system, or at least partially control it, is with eye movement. And there's a large body of literature about how eye movement has been probably the most effective therapy for post-traumatic syndrome and, and its symptoms, in any case. Um, so once I see articles on breathing, I'm always kind of drawn to them to see what um, science has to say compared to uh, what uh, the yogas have said, or the yogis have said over the course of time. So in this article, uh, they, they looked at the breathing pattern of patients with Parkinson's disease. Uh, and Parkinson's disease is a, a neuromuscular disorder. Um, the way I try to describe it in the article is that it, it results in kind of a staccato uh, move, movement. Your movement is no longer smooth, but is breaking down into teeny, teeny little uh imperceptible at first, but perceptible over time, uh, starts and stops. And that has to do with uh, the dopamine receptors in, in a part of the brain. And what the researchers found was that using very simple uh, tech uh, mechanics, just a, just a belt around your, your chest that would measure the excursions of your lungs as you were breathing, uh, they were able to very accurately identify uh, patients uh, with Parkinson's as well as patients that were likely to develop a neuromuscular disorder over the next several years, which is really, for Parkinson's disease, quite a switch. Parkinson's disease doesn't have any biomarkers. There's no lab test to do to say you have this diagnosis. It's a diagnosis that's made on a clinical basis, and because it's clinical, it's, it's somewhat subjective and it's very difficult to follow because if you think about it, and I try to measure your weakness uh, in January and then try to compare it to your weakness 12 months later in December, I don't have any good objective frame of reference to say whether it's stronger or the same or worse. Um, so this kind of a technique uh, can make a huge difference. So basically what the uh, researchers did is they took a, a group of patients uh, where they had uh, done sleep apnea kind of tests on the patients and where they knew which percentages of them developed Parkinson's over time 
and they went back and they looked and they looked at their their breathing patterns and they submitted those breathing patterns um, to an AI program. So AI programs are basically um, very fancy computer ways to do pattern recognition. Uh, the difficulty with this particular form of AI is that it doesn't tell you what it pattern it found. It simply says this falls into that pattern or it doesn't fall into that pattern. So it's a little bit of a black box, and that's always been a problem uh, for AI, that black box quality about it. But what they found was that looking at these um, basically non-invasive uh, measures, they could identify uh, with an accuracy of about 90% um, people that had or would develop uh, Parkinson's disease over time. Now let me let me qualify that. They couldn't say for sure that they would develop Parkinson's disease, but they were relatively sure that they would develop a neuromuscular disorder. Parkinson's is part of a, of a range of neuromuscular uh, disorders. Moreover, they could use that same information to follow them on a year-to-year -year basis. So they had a way of objectifying uh, the change in the patients over time. It doesn't provide these patients with any immediate benefit, but having something to measure now allows uh, physicians to begin to a little bit more rationally adjust medication doses and know when to start and to stop medication. So in the world of Parkinson's where there's not been uh, any good treatments uh, uh, or any kind of rational approach to, to management, this is a big deal. So just a little bit of background, how, how good are physicians at diagnosing Parkinson's as it stands? Because I know you said it's, it's inherently subjective because you're relying on a physician to diagnose it. Uh, you know, during a physical examination. Um, but my experience, and of course, I don't have any clinical experience, but but as a parent, for example, when I go to the pediatrician, the doctor's very skilled in what she's able to identify, you know, so I can go to her and say, what is this? She can go, oh, it's that because of, you know, my many years experience. So I'm wondering, how do those variables work in this context? Well, again, you're talking about very slight early changes. So if you ask me, once they have full-blown Parkinson's, we're very good at picking it up. No problem at all. The difficulty is in picking up early-stage Parkinson's where you might um, find that intervention makes a difference. We don't know because we can't identify early rather than late. Um, until the symptoms become apparent and persistent, um, our track record diagnostically is, is not very good. We can be suspicious of it, but uh, it's really a, a clinical diagnosis. We need to see, see how the patient's neurologic status changes over, say, a three or a six or a 12-month period of time. Now, if, if their changes are very slow, you may not pick it up for two years. If their changes are more quick, you may pick it up in three or four months. But that's only because it's becoming more apparent to everyone that there's a difficulty rather than some um, magic diagnostic tool that we have. And, and, and that's one of the beauties uh, of this test potentially is it, it makes it much easier to make the diagnosis. If I have a suspicion of it, 
I, I simply can give you one of these uh, belts to wear and take the data from a one night's sleep and begin to make a diagnosis. Okay, so this is a big deal. It sounds like it's a solid improvement in how you're going to identify people that may be at risk for this. Um, but as you mentioned, we don't have any great treatments for this. All right? I don't think there's really any sort of preventative actions you can take just yet. Correct me if I'm wrong. But No, you're correct. And okay, so what do, you, what do you do with this information in the short term until we develop you know, an, an effective intervention? In, in the short term, it, it may help us better manage the, the medications that we have, which are basically L-DOPA. Uh, to give some dopamine to to the system, uh, you know, a a big hammer for you know uh, uh, the problem. It's 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 not strategic. It's not a, certainly certainly a strategic uh, a therapy for Parkinson's, but it may allow us number one to identify patients uh, objectively earlier, start therapy earlier. We may find that that makes a difference in terms of the trajectory of the disease, how long we can keep them comfortable. Okay. Um, versus, uh, we may also find that there are situations where um, going up on the medication is not making any perceptible difference, and we can stop that. It's it's finally uh, uh, providing us with an objective measure that doesn't rely on the experience of the neurologist that's seeing you, and you know that that that's its its big claim there. There's two other claims that we can make about it that are important. From my point of view, this is the first piece of artificial intelligence that actually has any big value. I mean, the Apple watches and picking up atrial fibrillation uh, on uh, your wrist is not anywhere near uh, as significant a diagnostic improvement uh, than this, but you know, Apple's behind those watches. So there's a big push. And when you talk about AI, that's one of the first things to come through. And, and this test, it way outshines, um, any of the clinicians. We're not, you know, when you look at AI compared to uh, radiologists, because they, AI has made use of a lot of images. So they've done a lot of work in, in diagnostic radiology. AI is, is just as good as a radiologist, not better, just as good. Um, in this case, we have something that actually is better and that physicians can now use as a tool to extend their, their clinical reach. The other nice thing about it is that this is a non-invasive, very simple uh, means of getting a measurement. There's not a lot of blood work. You don't have to come into a center for a fancy test. In fact, um, in, in the study, they talked about um, using this um, belt that you would wear while you're sleeping. And in a, a smaller subgroup, they used radio waves and would bounce radio waves around your bedroom and could detect the movement of your chest simply with the radio waves. And last week, there was another article, which I'm sure is from the same group, talking about using those radio waves to monitor Parkinson's patients in their home and identify people that had problems with their gait in addition to uh, difficulties with their breathing simply by the means of radio waves. That, that changes things to a very large degree for, for people that are living 
outside the catchment area of a, of a, a tertiary hospital that does this level of work because you can deliver to them uh, the means of doing at-home diagnostics and at-home maintenance. And that would be a big, big uh, win for healthcare, especially in the areas where, um, well, I'm going to start calling it the physician deserts, where, where there's there's less physicians in the rural areas and certainly in some of the suburban areas that don't have uh, the expertise of uh, these kind of neurologists. So that's potentially very, very exciting then. And, and this is a rough comparison, but but it might be something on the level of like maybe like a glucose monitor where, you know, someone can, can measure an important, Absolutely. That's you know, a per- yeah. perfectly good example. Okay. And, you know, except there's not as many Parkinson's patients as di- patients with diabetes. So there's a different marketing approach, but that's correct. And I think you're going to see it with the, with the glucometers, the glucometers are going to make a big difference uh, in, in the, uh, the long-term care of patients with diabetes, because now they're going to have a way to follow their own um, habits. They're going to see what foods cause them problems, what activities cause them problems. And I think that you'll see over the next few years some algorithms laid on top of those that information coming in that helps assist people make some choices about what to do. I think that's going to be another huge area where we're going to see some significant improvement. Well, that leads to my, my next and my final question, because there are certain exposures that have at least been suspected of, of causing or contributing to Parkinson's disease. So one that's gotten a lot of attention in recent years is, um, you know, certain herbicides, for example, you know, so pesticide applicators or, or farmers or anyone that works in agriculture, if they're exposed to a particular chemical, there is some speculation. There's not very good data on it, but there's some speculation that this pesticide exposure could increase your risk. So I'm wondering, could you use a sort of test like this to say, you know, maybe there's particular subpopulations that we should focus on to see if they really do have an elevated risk for Parkinson's. Is that something we could make use of with this technology? Yeah, I think that, you know, I think that's another great application. Again, the beauty of this is that we have um, a way to measure um, the presence of a problem uh, in a relatively objective way and and certainly in a non-invasive and minimally expensive way to do. So I think that that would be another great place to do it. Now, the problem, of course, would be that, as I said, this test is accurate in picking up um, changes in the neuromuscular tone, but it doesn't, it's not diagnostic of Parkinson's. It's diagnostic of any of those suite of diseases that Parkinson's belongs to. But to your point, I think it would be a, a, a great way to follow some of these populations and see whether there's something going on. Pick it up a lot earlier. Yeah. Yeah. That just seems to make sense. Instead of relying on a case control study, you know, for example, where you have to ask people who are already sick, you know, how much top 40 radio did you listen to and how many jelly beans did you eat? And right. Instead of that methodology, you could employ something like this. You at least prospectively. Yeah. 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 Hone in statistically on what may 
be contributing to it. But that's really interesting. Is there is there anything else people should know about this before we before we move on? Because this is really really interesting stuff. I think. Uh, yeah, I I think we've hit the the highlights of what's there. I'm gonna we're gonna continue to follow. I continue to follow AI because I think it's a very interesting uh, area. It's been a lot more um, smoke and mirrors. And it's been useful. This is, as I said, one of the first times that I've seen something that really looks um, promising for for this kind of work. Very good. Yeah, I'd like to talk about some of the other medical developments or lack thereof in this field, because it seems and I've heard other people say this, too, that uh, there's a story to sell, you know, the, 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 the coming singularity is it's either really exciting or really scary. And so people will buy newspapers and magazines that talk about that, whether or not it's entirely made up or, or what have you. So, so yeah, let's definitely return to that in the future. Um, but let's go back in time a little bit and talk about this, this Woodstock 99 festival. And that's really just a jumping off point for what I want to talk about, which is artificial scarcity. But if, if you, you listening out there don't know what I'm talking about, this was a major music festival in 1999. It was held in Rome, New York. There were somewhere between 250,000 and 400,000 people in attendance. And, if you remember the news headlines, the whole thing just ended in disaster. It ended in rioting. People were lighting cars on fire. They were blowing up vendor trucks and vendor booths. They were stealing cash out of ATMs. Um, people got really, really sick because uh, there wasn't a sufficient uh, there wasn't sufficient access to fresh water, and uh, there were uh, <laughs> there was insufficient sewage and sanitation services. So there was trash everywhere. You had sewage mixing with the fresh water. So people were waking up at the end of the festival with trench mouth, <laughs> which is caused by drinking sewage, sewage contaminated water. Um, and it was over a hundred degrees. This was in um, Rome, New York. I think that's pretty close to you, Chuck, relatively speaking, but it's, well, it's on, closer it, to me than it is to you for sure. Fair enough. I will, I'll grant you that. Yeah. But it's on, it was held on an, on an air force base called Griffiths air force base, which of course is tarmac. So in the middle of summer, not only is it hot, but then you have the, what's called the urban heat island effect, where all of this uh, infrastructure retains heat overnight. So it's just a god-awful setting. There's there's not enough water. Um, you couldn't bring in food or water. The prices of everything uh, was exorbitant. So people are being gouged. They're pissed off about that. They're hot. Um, and they're just living effectively in squalor for three days. And so that explains why the thing collapsed. But what I wanted to talk about is that how that is sort of a microcosm of what happens when people who consider themselves nice, upstanding citizens who will help their neighbors and treat people with respect, um, what happens when they end up in a situation where they don't have enough food for their kids and they don't have access to fresh water and they're suffering heat stroke and maybe they're dying of hyperthermia, right? So you get yeah. into a, a sort of Lord of the Flies situation here. And there's some parallels here that we can talk about. But Chuck, what are, what are your initial thoughts on this, just as a comparison? Well, you know, I, I think I think you're correct. It's it's the it's the very thin veneer of civilization that we have um, that falls away quickly when we start talking about um, vital needs like housing and water and food. You know, I, I'm thinking back to um, one of the big storms we had on the island out here and it knocked out, you know, power for a week and it was making people crazy because the first thing that, you know, went that we didn't think about is the fact that you can't get gasoline because all the gas stations work off electrical pumps and none of them had generators. So 
people running around trying to, you know, get gasoline was a problem, let alone water or any supplies. They, we, we live in a very strange time because so much of our vital infrastructure is invisible to us. And we, we just take it for granted. And 50 years ago, <laughs> many of the things that we take for granted uh, weren't, weren't even there. You know, and, and that makes it difficult for us. That makes it difficult for us to, to support that, you know, the sexy idea of building roads and, 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 and tunnels and any of the other things that we really need. Well, what's so fascinating, and, and at least in the developed world, we haven't experienced a, a kind of cataclysmic event, not really, like like sort of a, a music festival turned into chaos. We we haven't had that. We've we've come close to it. We've had some things that are similar, but we do have policies in place or that will be in place very soon in a lot of places, like in the European Union and even some places in the United States that push us towards an outcome like this. And that's what really scares me. So out here in California, for example, as I mentioned in the story, um, we're experiencing a drought and there is a water shortage, but a, a significant part of the shortage is caused by the fact that half of the fresh water that we uh, collect just goes out to the Pacific ocean because <laughs> there are environmental groups who have said, you know, we need to preserve water for natural uses and because we have to save the guppies and, and whatever else. And this has persisted despite the fact that you have people who don't have access or don't have enough access to fresh water. And the way the media discusses the issue is to say, well, we're just overusing it. Our agricultural uses is crazy, even though, of course, residential and agricultural use of water in California has been declining, which is very, very interesting when you think about it. But all that to say, you have a situation where scarcity has been imposed on people artificially and so far, everything is is okay, relatively speaking. But you could have trouble on your hands if we push this a little too far, and that's what concerns me. Well, yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't disagree at all. In fact, you know, I think the better example is the the initiative by the state of California to go all electric on their vehicles, um, which is fine, all good. But where is the infrastructure to charge all of those vehicles? doesn't exist and and there's no plan that i'm aware of to bring it there and even if they were to put in all the charging stations where is all of that electricity going to be coming from are they going to go back to nuclear because they're not going to get it from the wind they're not going to get it from solar and then so they're going to be back to using fossil fuels in 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 another way and you know i think that the legislators are just more inclined to pass legislation that feels good than actually has any basis in, in real-life engineering. We don't even have to talk about science with, with air quotes around it, just in terms of basic engineering. The same thing, you know, for a different example, is, is true in New York. Um, we have two tunnels under the Hudson that connects New Jersey with the, with the island of Manhattan. And they've been trying to get the money for a third set of tunnels to go to this population of 8 million people for over 10 years. And finally, after 
eight, nine, ten years now, they finally got approval to go ahead to do it. If anything was to happen to the Holland or the Lincoln Tunnel, it would be chaos. You know, and you know, a scarcity that we put in in place because we we don't want to spend the time or the money uh, on the on the things that are invisible to us, but that make our lives as blessed as they are. It's fascinating as a, maybe as a psychological study or a sociological study, you know, what motivates people to do what they do. And one thing I always found sort of amusing, but also quite annoying is that the people who come up with these grand world changing designs, they always say, we're going to do it in 15 to 20 years, right? So California's ban of uh, uh, gasoline-powered vehicles, it takes effect effect in 2035. So the governor's not going to be in the same position. The legislators aren't going to be there. Whoever's at the California Air Resources Board right now, probably not going to be there. Maybe some of the, the lower-level uh, bureaucrats and scientists will be there, but the leadership will probably be gone. Yeah. And so, so that's what's so funny to me is that the, these ideas are so great, um, but you're going to deal with them after I'm gone. And then if they fail, I'm not there. And if they work, well, then I'm going to tell you how smart I was for coming, <laughs> for coming up with it when I did, you know? Right. So there's, there's sort of like they're, they're hedging their bets in a way, but they're sort of implying that something might not work. And that's why I've pushed it out, uh, well, you know, a decade and a half. Well, that's part of it. I think, well, you know, there's, there's a quote and then there's a piece of economics that goes behind it. The quote that I like the most is that, uh, a lot of these people had five-year plans on a four-year contract. And, you know, all the, all the good news was coming after the contract was completed. After they'd been paid, after they were gone, then the good things would happen, not to worry. But the way we describe it economically is the concept of temporal discounting, um, which is I will happily pay you on Tuesday for a hamburger today. And the, the politicians do that. They are more than happy to garner the headlines today about all the good things that will happen in 2035 because they're not going to be there in 2035 when that doesn't happen. Yeah, you're right. There was uh, there was one other quote uh, from my story, and it comes from a risk expert named Dr. David Zarek. He's, he's in the European Union, and he's been – uh, very, very critical of their farm-to-fork proposal and some of these other agricultural initiatives. And the basic idea is uh, they're going to require, I think it's a 50% reduction in the use of synthetic pesticides. I think it's by 2030 or 2035. And they want a 25% increase in uh, organic agricultural land. And the trouble here, and Chuck, you've written a, a little bit about this over the last year or so. Yes. The, the problem is, is that this is going to require an expansion of farmland uh, in poorer countries because Europe won't be able to grow uh, the food it needs. It, it really can't do that now as far as I as far as far I recall, if I'm remembering that correctly. Um, and then, of course, cutting pesticide use is a problem because if bugs and microbes and all the other stuff that wants our food gets it before we do, well, then you have to grow more, which, of course, requires more inputs and requires a greater environmental footprint. Uh, so there's a lot of problems here, and and the academic literature is very clear on this. The experts have pointed this out ad nauseum, and the politicians and you know the advocacy groups, they either don't care or they they're not capable of understanding. So so what are your thoughts on that? Since you've talked about this a little bit, well, you're correct. I mean, if the the, the more we go to uh, uh, organic farming, the less product 
productivity there is per acre, the more acres you're going to have to put under cultivation to feed the same population. That, that seems to be pretty clear at this point in time, and we don't seem to have an answer for it. So you're 100% correct in that way. I think that there's a, um, a basic disconnect between um, the academics and the advocacy groups that make use of models to describe things and how they play out in the real world. I mean, and, and, it, and it's not simply limited uh, to the people that are concerned about uh, global warming or getting rid of fossil fuels or advocate for this position or that. It's a general problem when we talk about um, taking a, a scientific model that we've tried. Take, take any of these simple public health measures that we've done that you can do on a, on a small scale, scaling them up uh, into the real world is far more difficult and involves far more things than were involved in the original, you know, project that showed things could, could work. Um, there's a book called The Voltage Effect that really goes into talking about um, this problem of transition from small, well-controlled studies to real-world policy. And, and it cuts across all of our policies that um, when you don't take into account the real world when you do the study, then you, you have a, a voltage drop. You don't get the, the same benefit uh, in the real world that you got in, in the small contained study. It's a very, very good point. You know, sometimes things don't translate the way that you would hope they do. And then sometimes you're not willing to uh, acknowledge that they didn't translate, or at least that you you were wrong in your product, in your projections. That's that's always interesting to me. The, the quote from Dr. Zarek I wanted to mention, and this goes back to what we were talking about at the top of the story. He just says, very frankly, uh, Western affluence and prosperity can disappear in a heartbeat through irrational policies. And that's that's really the key. And, and you were getting at this point just a minute ago, Chuck. And I think the problem is no one likes to talk about trade-offs, which is an economics concept. You know, in science, we like, you know, we like models. And in politics, we like grand ideas and we like saving the world. It feels good to, to virtue signal in this way. But nobody wants to talk about, uh, you know, well, when we cut our fossil fuel use in half or we just outright ban gasoline-powered cars, What's going to happen? You know, what's the cost going to be of that? And and nobody really thinks about that. It's not that you're denying there's a problem that has to be addressed. You're just simply saying, how is the solution going to work? And and that's the thing that that I think we're we're stressing here. I couldn't agree more. The other you know example I would just came to mind is the the electrical grid in Puerto Rico mm-hmm. that they've spent the last five years trying to rebuild, which disappeared. <laughs> Yeah, in 24 hours, because they they never really built resilience into the new system. They just kind of fixed what was there. Nobody sat back long enough to figure out a, a better way. It's craziness. It is. It's quite strange, and you know, I'm sure there's some difficulty that goes along with being in one of those positions, as we've talked about before. It's harder to. You know, to sell to solve something in real time as opposed to Monday, 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 Monday morning oh. quarterbacking it. But it still it still seems for some of these things you should be able to look a decade into the future. So another example is the um, the power crisis in in Europe right now. 
you know, you have the war ongoing in Ukraine, you have uh, energy exports from Russia being restricted, and they could be restricted further. And so Europe is in a bad way. And even now, even while they're going into winter, with the risk of not having enough energy or paying exorbitant prices for it, they're still shutting down nuclear power plants. Um, so, so I'm looking at that, I'm going, somebody is not thinking this through, or, or it's somebody who's not suffering the ill effects of their policies. I can't really figure out what else it might be, Chuck. You, you, I think you're right. Well, it's going to be an interesting winter, I think, overall. And um, I, I think that if they Europe suffers significant energy problems over the winter, which it looks like they might, um, there's going to be a, a lot of rethinking about policy, both foreign and domestic, in, in terms of their energy use and where they get their energy from. That may be the silver lining. Obviously, you know, the consequences we don't like and we want to prevent them if we can. But if you can't prevent them, maybe that is what it's going to take for people to go, you know, this is a bad idea what we're doing here. But in any case, I I would encourage everyone to check out both of these articles. Uh, I think mine's pretty good if I can be so humble. And Chuck's is is excellent just for for the insight into how technology is gradually at least improving certain aspects of healthcare. But um If you want to get these stories that we talk about on the show, just go to our website. It's acsh.org. Go up to the subscribe tab at the top, punch in your email address, and three times a week we will send you the stories that we publish. And then the ones that are most read, we bring here to the podcast and we talk about. So you can be a little bit better informed. Uh, You can follow the organization on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter. It's just at acsh.org. Thank you all, as always, and we will see you next time.